So in the last lecture, I mentioned that the guidelines state that we shouldn't intervene on asymptomatic pseudocysts. The major problem with pseudocysts is they are so hard to predict. Spontaneous resolution occurs in about a third of patients with a pseudocyst, and you will also find some asymptomatic pseudocysts just incidentally on imaging. And then there are the others that cause abdominal and back pain. Some will obstruct the biliary system or even the duodenum. They can be inflammatory and erode into the bowel or surrounding vessels and cause a life-threatening hemorrhage. Therefore, the uncertainty of what clinically will happen with this pseudocyst understandably makes physicians uncomfortable. You can't totally reassure the patient that everything will be fine, but being prophylactically aggressive can increase harm. So what exactly is a pancreatic pseudocyst? It's a collection of pancreatic secretions contained within a fibrous sac that is formed by inflammatory cells and fibroblasts, meaning a fibrous capsule forms. This fibrous lining does not have an epithelial layer, and these pseudocysts form late, meaning four weeks or more after pancreatitis occurs. You certainly will see cases of fluid collections less than four weeks after acute pancreatitis, but those are called acute peripancreatic fluid collections. It is important to understand there is also an entity called walled-off pancreatic necrosis that occurs more than four weeks out after an occurrence of necrotizing pancreatitis. It is not an arbitrary distinction from a pseudocyst because the need and types of intervention are different with walled-off pancreatic necrosis. In walled-off pancreatic necrosis, you may need surgical necrosectomy or image-guided percutaneous drains among the other possible interventions. Though I do want to make it clear that many cases of walled-off pancreatic necrosis can also resolve spontaneously. So invasive interventions are decided on a case-by-case -case basis. And in that sense, where you have to take it case-by-case, -case, pancreatic pseudocysts and walled-off pancreatic necrosis are similar, but there are also big differences. One of the big ones being that walled-off pancreatic necrosis forms from necrosis. So how do pancreatic pseudocysts develop? Pancreatic duct disruption is the problem. The exocrine fluids, meaning the digestive enzymes, leak out. Usually, this is from pancreatitis, but trauma resulting in duct disruption is another cause. So if you admit someone to the medical service and see a pseudocyst on imaging, ask about pancreatitis, but if they don't have a history of it, ask about abdominal trauma. Clearly, pancreatitis causing ductal injury is the much more common reason to see this. What happens to the ductal injury often determines what the clinical outcome will be. If the duct injury heals and the exocrine fluid no longer leaks out, things have a better chance of resolving. The pseudocyst as being persistently fed by a fistula may get worse. The diagnostic evaluation of pseudocysts is important and best left to radiologists to get into detail. Radiologists will be your best friend in interpreting CTs, and sometimes you may need MRCP 
to help define the process and consider the interventions. While CT is usually the first thing we order, but if an intervention is being planned, getting an MRCP will typically be the next step. The anatomy of the pancreatic duct with a pseudocyst can sometimes be defined by an MRCP. Whatever imaging modality you must utilize, how that pseudocyst relates to surrounding structures and what material is seen in the cyst is important. For example, air in the cyst may indicate infection or fistula. Blood in a cyst raises concern for hemorrhage, and that obviously raises a whole set of new clinical concerns. And since I'm mentioning imaging, there are also times endoscopic ultrasound is used, and one of the things you can do with endoscopic ultrasound is a fine needle aspiration. So let's move on and talk about treatment, which, as I've said, is so case-dependent. Again, to reiterate, many cases resolve spontaneously over time when it comes to pseudocyst. Clearly, if you have a patient with lots of symptoms from a pseudocyst, decompression is an option to consider. In that situation, one of the procedures often favored is called a cystogastrostomy. That is either a surgery or an endoscopy procedure to create an opening between a pancreatic pseudocyst and the stomach when the cyst is in a suitable position to be drained into the stomach. This conserves pancreatic juices that would otherwise be lost. There are other kinds of invasive options, such as an ERCP that can be used in certain cases for steering and sphincterotomy if there is a pseudocyst connecting with the main pancreatic duct. When it comes time to consider an invasive procedure for a pseudocyst, the typical hospitalist takes a step back and listens intently to the gastroenterology and surgical team. I think the key task for the internal medicine, critical care doc, or hospitalist is to realize when it is important to have those troops roll in. Now let's switch gears for a moment. I do want to say a few things about pain control. Let's say you have an alcoholic who drank himself into pancreatitis for the eighth time and he has a high tolerance for pain meds. You may be tempted to use the Lance Armstrong line, pain is temporary, quitting is forever. And I get that pain is relative and pain is different from suffering. I'm the first to admit I am very wimpy because when I accidentally step on my kids' Legos, I scream. Um, but there is a whole range to pain tolerance. I've known some people who can tolerate enormous amounts of physical pain, but other things cause them to suffer immensely, like looking at their ex's Facebook page. Every doctor and nurse has had patients begging for opioids to treat what are underlying emotional and psychological issues, and it can be challenging to know when physical pain or the desire to emotionally numb is the patient's main agenda, particularly in populations like alcoholics that get recurrent pancreatitis. Because, obviously, even when they're not in pain or having pancreatitis, they're still substance abusing. Individual providers have understandably developed ranges of tolerance for how liberally or conservatively they prescribe opioids because the issues are complex. However, 
Whatever your threshold is to treating pain, we are charged as providers to get our patients better as quickly as possible. And many of us believe that there are pulmonary benefits to adequately treating the pain of acute pancreatitis. When it hurts to breathe, you develop things like atelectasis, hypoxia, pneumonia, and respiratory failure, among other risks. And pancreatitis is a very painful condition. Personally, if my acute pancreatitis patient is in a lot of pain, I just put them on an opioid PCA, and the nurses seem to appreciate that as much as the patient does. As far as what is the single best analgesic to use for pancreatitis, there's insufficient evidence to suggest a single optimal drug selection within the opioid class. Let's close out the topic of pancreatitis by a few pearls or thoughts not already mentioned in the past lectures, but still need to be said. The first thing is diabetes can result when the pancreas is severely injured. Therefore, don't forget about controlling the sugar. That endocrine insufficiency is often transient and will improve after a few months of healing. But to see if that healing happens, you obviously need to follow the sugars closely in the outpatient setting. The next thing is that when things start getting really bad in acute pancreatitis, don't get tunnel vision focusing slowly on the pancreas. It often is the nosocomial problems of hospitalization that are quick to pile on, so remaining very observant as a clinician for ARDS, ventilator-associated pneumonia, urinary tract sepsis, catheter infections, hemorrhage, clots, and all the rest is extremely important. I do want to clarify something regarding cholecystectomy from the guidelines. In mild acute pancreatitis with gallstones in the gallbladder, cholecystectomy is recommended before discharge to prevent recurrence of acute pancreatitis. However, in necrotizing biliary acute pancreatitis, cholecystectomy should be deferred until active inflammation subsides and fluid collections resolve or stabilize to prevent infection. All right, another thing is if the kidneys are already doing poorly, but getting a contrast-enhanced CT is being contemplated for pancreatic necrosis, you can always consider getting an MRI instead. I had already said in a previous lecture that getting an early CT scan of the pancreas is not necessary in most cases because most cases resolve and giving that extra radiation, contrast, only increases cost and cancer-causing radiation. But one thing I didn't mention that's important to understand too is doing an early CT scan is usually a very little benefit. I've heard others compare early pancreatic CT scans to getting an early CT scan of the brain in ischemic stroke. And I think that's a good comparison because when we do an early CT of the brain in stroke, we're looking either is there a hemorrhage there or not. We usually are not going to see any major CT findings in the first few hours after a stroke. And likewise, you know, in that first day or two, you probably are not going to see much if you're looking for pancreatic necrosis because it just hasn't had the time to form on CT scan 
So jumping the gun too early and pulling that trigger on the CT can result in a lot of useless scanning. Last but not least, a lesson for diagnosing and treating everything. A lesson from the late Steve Jobs who said, the only way to do great work is to love what you do. You've been listening to the Hospital and Internal Medicine Podcast with your host, Dr. Gil Peratt.